G'day, Adventure Fit Radioers. This is Jared Fleming, two-time national weightlifting champ. This is uh, part one of part two. In this first episode with Jared, we talk about his background in weightlifting, his uh, assertion to the top of the sport. We also touch on injuries and mindset. So we touch on his back injury and how to rehab that. Also, we touch on his ACL injury and uh, the mindset of dealing with injuries and how to overcome it and how to continue training. So there's a lot to take uh, take home from this episode. Um, and then we also go on a bit of a tangent. We get on a philo- philosophical tangent in the GBS. So hopefully you like it. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Audio uh, Audible. Uh, you get your free 30 days and a free audio book at audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF radio. And don't forget, our mother company, Adventure Fit Travel, have just released their Philippines trip for this year. November 1st to November 7th, 2016, join Dimitri Klokov for their main guest coach. Also, activities include free diving, cliff jumping, zip lining, and a whole heap of awesomeness. Jump on adventurefittravel.com for more info. Anyway, let's get started with Jared. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one, no touching of the hair or face. And that's it. Yo. Discovery Roger, go for deploy. Where did we come from? So we're uh, we're sitting here with Jared Fleming, national champion weightlifter. I am uh, I'm sitting with Mac on my left and Tommy on my left as usual. And uh, yeah, we're going to throw to Jared. Jared, how are you, man? Hey, I'm do- I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me, and uh, excited uh, to chat with you guys. Awesome, good stuff. So, Jared, you're traveling around the the US at the moment, and you're um, tell us a little bit about that. You've been gallivanting around for a good month now. I see. Yeah, man, it's it's been great. You know, I uh, I set up a couple uh, different training camps on the the west coast of the United States, uh, California and uh, and Oregon, and I live on the east coast. So uh, my girlfriend and I figured uh, we would just drive out and see the whole countryside. So for about the past past uh, four and a half weeks, we've been just driving, seeing the countryside and and all uh, the United States has to offer. It's been pretty awesome, man. That's sick. Where's been the highlight so far? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the most beautiful spot is by far has got to be Yellowstone National Park. That's oh, been, yeah. uh, mm. absolutely gorgeous. So much wild, wildlife. It's been really awesome. Yeah, that's sick. That's awesome, man. So, um, what's the plan with that? Are you, you traveling around for a couple of months? Are you coming towards the end? What's the, what's the itinerary look like? Yeah, we're, you know, uh, the, it's funny cause, uh, the trip was only supposed to last about three weeks. So, you know, we've been on the road two more weeks than we originally thought, but, uh, so we're actually in Denver right now, Denver, Colorado, the Mile High City, and uh, visiting uh, my girlfriend's family and just hanging out. I'm actually at their house right now talking to you guys. So after this, a couple more days here, and then we're just going to 
take about three days and finish driving back uh, back home to South Carolina. Sick. And is this with uh, is this your yourself and your own brand, or is this through the Outlaw Barbell, or how have you done this? Yeah. So the um, so the camps that uh, I only currently do uh, camps with Outlaw Barbell. Um, so uh, the two that we had set up were with Outlaw Barbell. Um, one was in Portland, Oregon. The other one was in Venice, uh, California. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So so your um your head coach of Outlaw Barbell and your dad does the programming. Is that correct, or how's it work? Yeah. So uh so really really we're both we both kind of share the head coach position. Um. Right. So whereas I'm more or less uh, coach and and lead the Outlaw Barbell camps. Um. And he leads the programming. Um. But we kind of share those responsibilities. Like he writes the programming, but we kind of work on it together and and discuss what we think is best for everybody and. You know, and he usually coaches the athletes in competition because traditionally, you know, before I hurt my knee, uh, I was competing. So he took yeah. that role. So it was really kind of a shared head coach position where I filled some responsibilities and he filled others. Um, so it's it's really been a, a shared position. That's and, cool. And since being injured, have you uh, have you enjoyed the coaching side of it, or are you still uh, really eager to continue as an athlete? You know, um, I'm, I'm obviously still really eager to continue as an athlete. You know, I'm, I'm only 24, so I'm still pretty young in the, in the world of weightlifting. But, you know, I have really enjoyed the opportunity to, to just coach and work with people. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if the right word's pride, but there's, there's a lot to, to take from being able to coach people and see them progress. And Absolutely. I've actually, I've really enjoyed that as well. It's, it's been, it's been, you know, unfortunate the the situation, but it's been a nice you know it's been nice to experience the role of coach for once. You know, I, I enjoy it. I suppose it'll keep your motivation up through your injury as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, just continuing to be around it, um, being in the in- environment and around the community, and, and keeping me involved and staying relevant has been really nice. Rather than just sitting at home and you know just not doing anything, you know, it's been good to stay relevant for sure. So before we go into your, your injury that you're dealing with and, uh, and stuff like that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? So you've been weightlifting a long time, I know that, and your dad was your coach. Why don't you tell us how it all started? Yeah, so um, I started when I was 10 years old, 23 now. So 20, am I 23 or 24? You know, I can't even remember these days. But uh, <laughs> Make a decision, yeah, mate. <laughs> yeah. Are you drunk? So, so, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a, little, uh, a little to drink before. Common <laughs> there you go. That's um, awesome. Loosen up. No, Retired love. But, uh, yeah. But no, I, I started uh, when I was 10 years old, so 13, 14 years ago. Uh, I started in, I believe, 2002. Um, you know, and I was, it first had, it first started out. So when I was, um, eight years old, I asked my dad if I could lift weights. Um, he lifted weights when he was in college and he had some old, uh, York bumper plates just sitting around the, you know, the, the barn. So I grew up on a farm and, and he had the weights just stored in the barn. And, uh, so I saw him and I, you know, I just wanted to be a strong kid. So I asked him if I could lift weights and he said, no, you're too young. You know, it's not good for kids. And then, uh, I just, kept asking him, you know, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old. I just kept asking him if I could lift weights. And finally, when I turned 10, he said, you know what? Um, I think you might be old enough. I'll take you to a friend of mine that I lifted with in college that still does it, that lived, you know, 15 minutes from us. And, uh, you know, I, at the time I didn't know if I wanted to do weightlifting or powerlifting or bodybuilding. I just wanted yep. to lift weights and be strong, you know? Yep. Um, so it just happened to be that, uh, he, the guy, my, you know, my dad did weightlifting and, and this guy did weightlifting. So I started doing weightlifting and, uh, one, I think it was about six months to a year in from, from lifting. I won, uh, I qualified in one junior Olympics. Wow. So I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so I was pretty, like, wow, you know, awesome. I'm, I'm, 
I'm pretty good at this, so you know I might as well stick with it. And I did uh, other sports all through you know middle school and high school, and uh, um, and then uh, my junior year, I got an offer to go to college and lift weights on a scholarship, and took it, and the rest is history. Wow, that was going to be one of my questions. Uh, one of my next questions when you were giving us the intro was, when did you start to take it seriously? But I suppose if you're winning the junior Olympics, you're obviously already at that point where you know that you can take it somewhere but how did you kind of as a youngster um your dad and yourself how how did your dad manage you how did you manage yourself how did you get through the stage of say 12 to 16 to when your body's matured a little more what did the training look like yeah you know uh i was you know i was really fortunate to have such a great you know group of people around me you know with my dad and my first my very first coach the guy that uh lifted with my dad in college his name was jim storch um, and they're both just, you know, my dad and, and Jim are both great guys and, um, they had my best interest at heart all along. And, um, the big thing was my, uh, Jim and my father wanted me to continue to be an athlete. They didn't want me to specialize at a young age. Yep. You know, they were like, do soccer, play, play football, you know, do tracks, you know, do whatever you want, but you know, be an athlete. So, you know, from 10 years old to 18, you know, I played soccer, I played football, uh, I did track and field. I wrestled in high school. What was your um, second so sport? I, would you say what? Would, what was the what was the biggest passion outside of the weightlifting side of it? Um, probably uh, soccer. Or yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I actually played on a. I played varsity soccer in, in high school, and I played on a, a travel team for New York State. I was at, I was in like a, a pretty good um, program. Um, so a lot of the kids that I played with went on to take full ride scholarships um, at big universities and things like that. Um, right. So I was, yeah, I was, so soccer was really my first love. You know, I played soccer, you know, from the time I was able to run around. Um, That's funny because was, is it, is soccer's not, is it bigger in the States than I, than I'm aware? Like it started to grow in Australia over the last 10 years, but it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really grab it like it wouldn't really stick out to me as a sport that people gravitate to in the States. Was there many of your friends at the time as well that were playing soccer or was it pretty niche little sport over there? Or? You know, it was, it's, it's pretty big for young kids. You know, I mean, at the age I started soccer, they didn't really have football. You know, I, I can't remember what age I started, but really they only had softball or T-ball for kids and they had soccer, you know, and I just played soccer at a real, you know, probably, I probably started around five years old and, um, I was really good at soccer as well. So, you know, kids would just gravitate to what they're good towards. And um, I just kept playing soccer. And I did a little football and a little wrestling. But I was I was better at soccer because I'd done it for years and um, stuck with it. And then, uh, like I said, when I was 10 and I found weightlifting and I was really good at that, um, that was when I, you know, I, I kind of made, you know, when I was 10 and I won Junior Olympics, my parents said, hey, you know, what are your goals in weightlifting? And I said, I want to I go to the Olympics someday. And they were like, wow, like that's a real serious goal. And um and, and ever since then, I, you know, I just, weightlifting, I did everything else, but weightlifting was always in the back of my mind what I wanted to do. Are you um, sure you uh, didn't want to take up a T-ball career? <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was the best at that at primary school. Like, that was the sickest sport. How, how so good. swing for the fences every time. <laughs> it's, it's a stationary ball, and some people got striked out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Some people Definitely. suck. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So when did you get... um? When did you get to national level competition representing America? Yeah, so um, you know, take take a little step back. I, um, you know, you had asked about what my training looked like from uh, ten to eighteen or whatever. You know, yeah. I, uh, 
I started at 10, um, and I only trained three days a week uh, until I went to college. So I trained three days a week. Um, and, uh, like I said, at 10, I won junior Olympics and I went on my first, uh, uh, international team for, to compete for the United States. When I was 13, I went to Mexico and and competed in the youth Pan Ams. And from the time I was 13, you know, all the way up until now, every year from the year I was 13 on, um, I competed internationally for the United States, whether it was youth and then junior and then senior. Um, so every, pretty much every year since I think 2005 or 2006, I've competed for Team USA in one form or another. Wow, that's impressive. So, mm-hmm. so when did you become a senior weightlifter? Because I know that you you're a two time senior national champ, right? Yeah, yep. I uh, I've won uh, senior nationals twice. I've won our American Open three times. Um, I've broken American records in the youth, junior, collegiate, and senior division. So every division you can break American records, I broke them in. I think um, um, I think you broke the you unofficially broke the American record uh, the day when we met at the Outlaw Barbell Camp in CrossFit like Collingwood years ago? a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think yeah. you snatched 167. I think was it was that yeah, the record yeah, was I, 166 at the time? I think. Yeah, I think it was. I think I did 166 there, and the record was 165. So yeah. I had broke it there, and then uh, when I came back to the states. Um, it was the the record has been passed back and forth several times, so it, it got broken uh, by Colin Burns and then by Norik Vardanian and then by Colin Burns again, yeah. and then I ended up coming in at, at nationals last year and broke it and snatched 170 kilos. And yeah. was that the was that the American as fuck incident? Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> what's that? <one? laughs> um, well, I don't know. Jared should probably do a better job explaining it, but uh, oh man, you, you want to explain uh, what happened? Well, video really says a thousand words. You'll have to watch the video. We'll on put YouTube, it up on. We'll put it up on our on our show. We'll, Tommy's got a computer next to him, so we'll put it up so the boys can have a look at it, and we'll put this in our show notes on the website so people can have a look at it. But why don't you tell us what what went on? So this is Jared's trying to trying to break the national record and get it up on YouTube. You guys can watch it while Jared talks about it. What are we so, gonna What are we gonna look at? Um, what What will be on under at YouTube? Uh, probably if you type in Jared Fleming American record, it'll probably come up. Yeah, Jared Fleming. Big Papa, 69. <laughs> um. <laughs> but, uh, well, basically, so what had happened was um, there's a company in America called, it, called American as Fuck, and uh, it just really caught my attention because, you know, my my image and what I feel strongly about is just being American. You know, I love this country, and I, I just love and am proud to be American, and, and their company really meshed with, you know, the image that I was trying to portray. Yep. And, uh so I just, I gravitated towards their designs. Well, anyways, I had, uh, broken the American record and in competition. We're, watching it. We're watching it on hook grip now, which is, uh, which is beautiful. So we'll, we'll put this in for the listeners too. I've, um, I've, uh, just so you know, Jared, I've snatched a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not too bad, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. Don't just, give him, just don't give him first, credit, mate. You just watched your first snatch. Credit. So take us through, keep, keep with your commentary. Keep us going with your commentary. That is a cool celebration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but, Jack. But, uh, oh, no, that's good, man. But uh, I broke the American record at a meet in Florida unofficially, and uh, I, I was so confident that I was going to break the American record officially at Nationals that I had that shirt on underneath, and I knew that if I broke the record, I was just going to be so pumped up and, uh, and just go crazy. So I figured that shirt was just appropriate for breaking the American record, and I was so pumped up after doing it, I just... Got a little crazy. You know? <laughs> what about um? Wasn't there a bit of backlash though? Uh, you know the the chairman of the board of USA Whaling came back right after I did it, 
and started yelling at my dad who was back there coaching me and said, he can't effing do that, <laughs> blah, 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 and, and was going crazy. And he was like, if he does it again, we're kicking him out of the competition. And so, uh, I, you know, nothing actually ever came of it. But uh, there, I was, I was a bit concerned that uh, <laughs> they might hold it over my head. So, uh, but nothing ended up coming of it. They, I just apologized, and uh, and everybody was was cool that's good. with it. But I, but I ended up selling about five hundred of those t-shirts. It was <laughs> yeah. pretty awesome, you know. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. So, so, yeah, cool. So, so let's go. When did you first? When did you first become national champ? Because was that before you had those back injuries? I remember we spoke a year ago and I was going through my back issues and now mm-hmm. you're obviously on the other end of it and then you've re-injured your knee. But was that before the back injury? Yeah, so I, I won my first... Um, well, so I won my first American Open when I was 17. So I won... Or was it 17 or 18? I won my first American Open at 17 or 18. Um, and then I won my first Nationals when I was... It was 2013. I was... Uh, I think I would have been 19. Yep. So I won nationals in night when I was 19 in 2013. Um, I I should have won the two years previously, but uh, in 2011 I was competing at junior worlds instead of nationals, uh, and the total I did would have won. Right. And then uh, 2012, uh, when I was was I 18, I ended up bombing out and losing. And then 2013 was the first year that I was there and put a total. So I, I won in 2013. And then it was after nationals before world championships. Um, so the competition was August, J- July or August, um, one. And then I hurt my back in like September and then world championships were in October. So uh, mm. I won my first nationals right before I ended up hurting my back. Yeah. Right. Wow. So yeah. with the, I remember you saying, I think it was, I think it was the exact same back injury as me. So two, two bulged, oh, two bulged discs and a torn disc. Am I right? Or what was mm-hmm. the injury? Yeah, yeah, I had uh, I had uh, bulging discs in uh, L4, L5, and L5S1, which are the two lower lowest discs in your back. Yep. Um, and and it was really more or less chronic, uh, you know, lack of stretching and, and weakness in my low back. And uh, and then there was one day I was doing uh, squats out of the rack, um, and as I, w- I was doing a set of ten with right around 230 kilos, so down down to about a half a squat, and I was getting tired and lazy, and uh, one side came down faster than the other, hit the pin, shot the weights up, and then I felt a, a like a tweak or and a and a snap in my back, Ooh. and uh and then that was just what caused it. And it took me about a year um, to one find you know nobody knew what to do. I had these you know I had these bulging discs, and I went to physical therapy, and they were like, "This is what you need to do to fi- get the discs back in." Um, but the pain still never went away because I didn't you know fix what caused it in the first place, you know. And it took me. I mean, it took me about a year to figure out the right course of action to fix it. Um, you know, and, and since then, I, I, you know, I had to talk to so many people and work work with so many people to to figure out what to do. There was like no answer, you know. For so sure. just to go back a second, so you figured it out that it was lack of mobility and weakness. You figured that out yourself. Yeah. Well, I figured. Well, so I, I studied kinesiology in college, which is the study of human body movement. Yep. Yeah. So, so, so I had studied a lot of anatomy and things like that. So I had a, a good understanding of how your body was supposed to move. Um, along with a lot of physical therapists and chiropractors that I talked with, I just kind of formulated, um, an idea of what I needed to do. And Glenn Penley, you know, who I know has done a lot of camps in Australia. Um, he really helped to put me on, uh, a back strengthening, um, program that really helped to get my back strong. Um, but, but think of it this way, right? So if your hips, you know, your hip flexors, your glutes get really tight, then, um, your hip, 
uh, won't won't uh, hinge and pivot like it's supposed to. Yep. And when that and when that happens, uh, the only thing that's going to then move is your spine. So then your spine takes all the load rather than your hips. Right. Um, and so that's essentially what had happened to me was my hips became immobile and uh, my back was taking all the, the force. Right. So you just uh, extensive rehab, extensive stretching. Uh, any specific exercises that uh, Penlay advised you to do? Yeah, you know, if uh, and this is another thing for anybody who might be struggling with with you know some kind of back issues, um, you know, obviously see you know a doctor, a chiropractor, a physio first. But I have two uh, two different videos on YouTube. Um, one is under Jared Fleming's back strength, and one's under uh, Jared Fleming uh, flexibility. Um, and I would recommend looking those up, and they're really uh, great videos to do exactly what I did. I used uh, I used those videos for a point there when I, uh, when I when I was butting my head up against the wall when I had my back issues. And um, what's going on in the background? Are you, <laughs> Are you having a fight yeah, with sorry. the dog? Yeah, sorry. Hang on. I, yeah, well, I, we got my sorry. I meant to say something. We got my dog here, and uh, he was just barking, so I had to bring him in. Uh, yeah, sweet. We'll bring him into the other room because he was going nuts. We'll, we'll get definitely him, we'll get us in the show. We'll get him involved later. Yeah, we'll, we'll ask him later. <laughs> um, so, anyways, sorry, we might have to cut that out, but I'm, I'm good to go again. Sorry uh, it's about totally, that. It's totally cool, man. We'll just leave it in there. It's fine. Um, but um, yeah, I use those videos, so I remember the um, the stretching and the the back strengthening stuff. Um, so what do you think, because this is some of the things that we did a little poll for our listeners the other day. We only have a small handful of listeners, but uh, we, did, we did a survey. And that, one of the major things that they want to know is how people come back from these injuries. So we'll talk about your ACL later. But like, let's say for your back stretching and your back strengthening stuff, how much time did you actually have to put in? Because this is the thing that people don't understand mm. when they're trying to get back from injury and like the amount of work that needs to be done. You know, it's not a, oh. it's not an idle thing. So what what was? Let's do like a day to day. What did you do for your stretching? What did you do for your back strengthening? Um, well, I mean, people don't understand how long it takes. You got to think. You know, if you if you've neglected something for for ten years, it's not going to correct itself in a week or two weeks or a month or you know, it, it takes a long time of of diligent work to undo years of of undoing. It's like it's like losing weight, right? People think that they can go on a crash diet and lose all that weight in like two weeks, which, you know, it took them 30 years to put it on, you know, so it's going to take them a long time to get it off. And it's that same thing. People want a quick fix. They don't realize it's going to take hard work. Um, And for me, I just I knew that if I wanted to, you know, I wish that I'd have been a little more proactive than reactive, you know, but that's how we are. You know, we wait until something terrible happens and then we're like, oh, wow, like I need to fix it. Um, so, so what I did, you know, I just, I, I studied a lot and I looked up, you know, what I thought was causing it, you know, lack of mobility and flexibility in my hips and, and, and back weakness. So, um, what I, basically what I did was, um, I would, uh, so for about, let's see, three to, let's say, uh, I think about three months consistently. So three months I was working out nine times a week. And uh, for for three months, wow. um, let's see, six out of my nine workouts, I only did back strengthening stuff for three months. Wow. So I would go in and I would uh, in the morning, and I would do all my back strengthening stuff. So I would do um, good mornings. I would do back extensions. I would do these things called dead walks or death yeah, marches. The dead walk I is would, that the um, the flex uh, the flexion at the hip, then flexion of the thoracic with the with the butt with the. Uh, with a dumbbell. With a dumbbell. Yeah, that was that were yeah. they fried you. Yeah, right. A really oh. interesting exercise. So it's like a half a good morning with a and then you go into flexion of the thoracic. Where's Is that dumb- right, Jared? 
Yeah, uh, lumbar spine, so your low back. You go through uh, flexion of your lumbar yes. and then into extension. Yes. So rather than like Ooh. in weightlifting, we always do isometric isometric training, mm-hmm. which is holding the the muscles or or your back or whatever in a fixed position and then lifting. But we never do eccentric or concentric of the spine. So you get you only get strong in isometric, not eccentric or concentric. So I yep. started practicing going through eccentric loading and then concentric loading. Uh, and training my back in a different way that had had never been trained before so Mm. six out of nine workouts a week for three months i only did back strengthening stuff and then the other three workouts a week i would do like snatch and clean and jerk front squats and for man i couldn't back squat for nearly eight eight months so i would do these things called belt or piston squats where you wrap a belt around your waist and then you have a pit uh, a loading pin with weight and then you stand up on like blocks and then you mm. squat. So there's no yep. load on your spine, just on your hips. Yep. yep. Um, and what about, uh, like uh, how much of that do you now put into your, or how much of that prehab do you put into your, uh, exercise training or program now? Uh, well right now, uh, I haven't been doing hardly anything other than, uh, my knee therapy. Um, but before I hurt my knee, um, I wasn't doing nearly as much of it. So for, about a year, I was doing uh, back strengthening stuff like, let's see, probably probably three to four um, workouts a week. But it would, be, uh, but I would add it on top of my workout. So whereas for three months it was my workout, um, after those three months I just slowly would scale it back. Um, and then right before I hurt my knee, I was probably doing it three days a week, um, three days a, or three workouts a week. I would pick probably two exercises and add them into my workout just as like a just a maintenance type thing, you know? And would you um, recommend that people uh, sacrifice one day of training for this prehab stuff as in prevention is better than cure? Um, you know, you know what I would do if I were to do it all over again, I would have been adding it into every workout. So like there gets to be a point, there gets to be a point where, you know, certain strengths, you know, you don't need to work on as much. Like my philosophy on training is you need to assess and find what your weakest link is and you always need to be working what's the weakest. And that might change, you know. So say six months of your back, you know, you assess, hey, my back's weak. You spend six months really strengthening it. Well, then you know what? Your back might be up to par and then you've got something else. So my thing is always work whatever you're weakest at and bring that up and then everything will come up. But what I would do rather than just doing like say, you know, dedicating a whole day to it, what I would do would be sprinkle it in throughout the week, you know. So if your back is weak, then I would add in um, one back exercise every workout that yep. you do and just sprinkle it in and make it, uh, you know, change your programming around rather than just dedicating a day to it. That's how I would have added it in more often um, if yeah. I could do it all over again. It's very hard to tell people that because uh, they don't see it until it happens. As yeah. you said, we're very reactive rather than uh... – Preactive. Mm-hmm. Proactive? Yeah. That's the one. Oh, yeah. Right. And the other big thing, too, man, is nobody wants to stretch out. Now, Ramwad mm. has been beautiful. Ramwad and Mobility Wad and things like that have gotten people, you know, actually stretching, but nobody wants to do it. Everybody's, and I, and I was this way forever. I was like, you know what? I'm going to bust my ass as hard as I can in the gym. And then I was so tired, I didn't want to stretch. So I would go home and, and go to bed. But years of doing that caught up with me. And, uh, and, you know, it got to a point where I was like, you know, if I have to cut an exercise short to make sure that I can stretch for 30 minutes, then I got more benefit out of stretching than those last 30 minutes, you know, doing some other type of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certainly yeah. while you're warm as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Always stretch right after your workout. That's by far the best time. Mm. So with the um, with the back injury you had, how much time for me, um, it took me, uh, there was a, a – 
bit of time there that I needed to actually just rest, I found. I found that mm-hmm. I had to stay away from anything, even strengthening my lower back. For the listeners, I've had the exact same injuries, Jared, and, and have... And for um, the listeners, Bill's a, a weightlifter. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently, I mention that every show, Jared, and the boys are giving, giving, giving shit out. But um, I, found like, I found that there needed to be a good amount of time where I could actually just not... Not not try and strengthen my back, but just let the scar tissue heal and actually just recover from um, from the bulges in general. Did you find that, or did you were you able to? Because I, I found it so hard to pick the right amount of time before getting back and doing some accessory stuff, and then building back into training, and then bang something. I would have a little a little spasm or a big spasm or whatever, but I obviously just hadn't given it the right amount of time. Did you need to take an actual a considerable amount of time off, or? And can I just add before you do this? There's some physios and stuff out there that say rest, and then yep. there's some physios or whatever specialists say never rest. You can always yeah. still do something. So you can be doing something, yeah, for sure. What, what did you do, Jared? Um, well, you know, so at, at first it was kind of like denial for me, really. You know, I had I had world championships coming up, and I was like, you know, it's just a tweak, and I kept trying to push through it. Um, but you know, again, everything hindsight twenty twenty. You know, so what I would recommend to people is, you know, when you when you bulge or herniate a disc, you know, they're those discs are really pissed off, you know, they're going to be really inflamed. So what I would do would just be try to get the inflammation under control, you know, take anti-inflammatories like, you know, natural ones like fish oil and ginger and things like that. Um, and try to try to get the inflammation under control. Um, but yeah, you don't want to start strengthening immediately because it's, you know, when you have a traumatic, you know, thing like a disc herniation or a disc bulge, they're going to be inflamed for a while. So if you're trying to strengthen something that's already inflamed, you're just going to make it worse, you know? So you're going to want to take a good month to six weeks and just really kind of let it rest and try to get control of the swelling, the inflammation. But what I would do during that time is stretch because you can do stretches that are going to, you know, when your hips are locked up like that, even walking, you know, you're putting pressure on your back, you, you know, your pelvis is anteriorly tilted and it's putting pressure on your discs. So even after an injury like that, I wouldn't recommend strengthening. I would give it, you know, a month to six weeks or so. Um, but you can stretch during that time and do stretches that will loosen up your hips and take the pressure off your back. And then, you know, about six weeks later, then you can start to gradually work your way into doing some strengthening stuff. Yeah, cool. Hey, uh, Jared, you just mentioned that you went into a bit of denial. Uh, what other, or how, how did you cope with this mentally? Did you go into depression at all? Did you stay positive? Uh, being a high level athlete, how did you deal with this big setback? Um, you know, I was, I was lucky that I was in school at the time. So I actually had a lot of stuff to keep my mind off of it. You know, it's, you know, they say that in life you can do two things really well. If you try to do three, then you're going to be, you know, mediocre at all of them. But if you do one, it can become overwhelming. Um, the beautiful thing at that time was, like I said, I had school, so I had something to keep my mind off the fact that I was so injured. Um, but you know, I never, I never got depressed, but I did kind of wonder, you know, I, at first I was like, it's just a tweak, you know, I, you know, as an athlete, we all know, like sometimes, you know, you just tweak something and you think you'll be good in a week or so. And then sometimes you have a real injury and, and I just thought it was a tweak, you know, maybe I'll take a week off and, um, and see how it feels. Um, I came in the next day, didn't feel so good, you know, came in the next day, didn't feel so good, you know? And then, uh, I kind of realized like, wow, like something's actually wrong, you know? Um, but I had worlds coming up. So rather than just you know, trying to necessarily find the answer. I just kept trying to push through it. And I, you know, I was seeking an answer, but it, the answer wasn't readily available. So I just kind of kept trying to push through it as, as much as I can. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of embraced and accepted that's what it was. And I needed to do what I needed to do. 
And a lot um, of the uh, a lot of the athlete mentality is keep pushing through, certainly when you've got a goal right in front of you. But and it's a, and it's a fine line between you know bitching out or you know pushing through because you can have some mentally uh-huh. and physically tough days, and you can turn up to the gym and have the best day of your life, you know, or you can actually take the rest and because your body is telling you, hey, back off for a week. So it's a fine line. Yeah, I mean, it, it was weird because there will be some days where I was able to actually lift enough weight. You know, it, it was like this. I could go a week without training, come in and, do, you know, feel good enough to do a relatively heavy workout. And then I was trash for another week, you know. Mm. So I knew that I would be able to compete at Worlds. I knew I could do one day, you know. Um, and then, I, man, I felt terrible afterwards for several weeks, you know. Um, but I just did what I had to do. And, um, you know, I, I was really on the fence about whether or not to, to decline the world championships, which would have been, you know, that was my second world championships. And I really didn't want to pass up on that opportunity. Um, and I just, every day I took it one day at a time. I was like, you know, how do I feel? And I had enough days where I could, I knew that if I went a week of rest, I could do one day, you know? And so that was my, my plan going into worlds was just rest up and then hit one heavy day. And it ended up working okay. But, um, Mm. I mean, yeah, I just did what I had to do. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, so this is all through your back injury. So once you got, let's let's take it back to getting back onto like kind of a timeline. So you, you come back from your back injury, and then last year you were um you were national champ, and then um, set the snatch and the total American record, uh, was it or? Yeah, just a snatch record. Just a, just a snatch record, and then so obviously, and we don't want to just talk about injuries the whole time. We'll talk about some training stuff afterwards, but um. So you've gone from the back injury, then you've you've won the national championships again. That's the whole American as fuck, the celebration, or, and then mm-hmm. y- your goal was obviously Rio 2016, and then um, you blew your knee out. How did you blow your knee out on that cleaner? We we watched the video before we started, and um, mm-hmm. it just yeah, it just seems so bloody innocuous. Like I just I actually couldn't. I was trying to find a, you know a knee cave or anything there, mate. And I could I couldn't see a a single thing. So what what happened? Yeah. You know, it's so crazy. And I got a hook grip, uh, Nat Arem, the guy that runs hook grip, sent me like a super high definition slow-mo video yeah. um, that I, I tried uploading to YouTube. I don't Symphony, know if it's on there. Symphony Orchestra going online at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, so that really helped to see exactly what happened. But, you know, my back injury was chronic. That 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 was negligence on my part. But the knee injury that happened at Worlds was the most random. I had no knee pain. I I never have knee pain. My knees are great. No knee pain. Every warm-up was good. Um, I mean, I was ready to rock, rock and roll, man. And, um, the clean looked that great. Clean, the clean looked really nice. It, I didn't, yeah. Yeah. You know, I had, I had done that weight and training like a week before, like everything was good. You know, I had no, no clue what was coming and, uh, caught the clean, stood up, clean was easy. And when I adjusted my grip on the jerk, um, I mean, you can, if you see it on slow motion, you can just kind of see my face. I'm just like, yeah. you know, I'm in, I'm in shock. I have no idea what's happening. You know, I, I throw the weight off my shoulders. Um, and one of the things I noticed is I was coming out of the clean, I was a little forward, which, you know, happens from time to time, right? You just yep. throw it up and you take a little step forward. Like it happens, you know, from time to time. Mm-hmm. So I threw it up and I took a little step forward. Um, but as I took that step forward, the bar came down, you know, just as I was locking out my, uh, my right leg. Um, and instead of it bending like normal, it hyperextended. And, uh, you can see where my, my quad, you know, my femur comes in, it it just caves in and you can see it shift. Um, and then tore my ACL, tore my meniscus and just total, total random freak accident that, Mm. 
Who knows? Do you know the the biggest thing that I I found when I was I watched the video just before and um, you know they they you just do the the little knee pop and you go down and then straight away you hear this bah! Jared Fleming failed attempt. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like yeah, 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 come yeah. on guys get yeah. around me a little just bit. insult <laughs> yeah, injury. Yeah, yeah it's just so loser. harsh. <laughs> loser, loser. <laughs> <laughs> Some. Oh my god, that's so, too funny. That's um. So that's taken away. Obviously, you were when it all happened. I remember because I follow you on um, Instagram. I, I think I remember you saying that you were still hopeful for Rio 2016, but obviously that's that's not an option now. Are we? No, no. Well, you know, it's it's really unfortunate because um, had I have made that lift that I tore my knee on, uh, the United States would have gotten three spots to the Olympics for the men, and we end up with zero. So that one oh, lift wow. made all the difference. Yeah. Sure, and no had way. I have had I have made one more lift after that, which would have been um, the same weight that I made at nationals, then I would have been uh, given the automatic Olympic spot like Jenny Arthur did. So the tearing my knee in that competition, you know, re- I mean, you never know, but I was ready to hit the the weight, you know, that I did at nationals. So really, that injury took the Olympic spot away from me. I mean, it was that close. That's sad. Um, so not only. Not only did it take it away from me, but it also really hurt our country because you know we didn't end up with any spots. But how did your teammates? I mean, uh, I'm going to say team. Uh, how did they react to it? Were they obviously uh, devastated that uh, they didn't get to go to the Olympics? But did you get much support? Yeah, you know everybody was really great. I mean, everybody knew that it was completely out of my control, and there's nothing I could do. You know, I mean, I know people were bummed and upset, but no one was upset at me, and everybody was you know was real positive. Um, and, and the other thing too, is, you know, it's, I wasn't the only one to blame in that, you know, there was, there was so many other scenarios that we could have still gotten three spots, you know, any, anybody on the team, if they'd have made one more lift would have gotten us three spots. So, you know, it was super, super close. Is there politics Um, within the team? Like, uh, if, if someone misses a lift, do people blame them or is there a bit of, uh, behind the scenes sort of talk? No, no. You know, the, the whole team, the whole American team, all the guys that, you know, consistently make teams, um, they're, you know, there's nothing like that. You know, you do what you can do and freak stuff happens sometimes. And, and uh, it's a good group of people. I mean, yeah, of course, people might be upset, but not mad at the individual. You know what I mean? Yep. There's, there's, not, there's nothing really like that. It's, it's a pretty good support group, which you need too. you know, you don't want to be afraid of missing listening your team being upset at you that just breeds negativity you know everybody's pretty positive and uplifting yeah, absolutely. um on, on the team which is which is great you know i think the men like i said that consistently make you know world teams you know just to name like kendrick ferris and travis cooper and myself and um, um other guys like that are just you know james tatum um mm. Derek johnson i mean for the most part everybody's really supportive of each other and uh it's just it's just a good group you know That's- fortunately um yeah, so just on that, Jared, on the qualifications um, of the US and not getting any men to the um, to the Olympics this year, why is Australia is even even further behind? But why is the US um, and Australia and all these other nations that are taking weightlifting seriously? Why are we so far behind European and Asian nations? Do you think? Um, well, first off, I, the the America we will end up getting one spot at the Pan Am Championships, um, so we will get one. Um, but it is, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of factors. Um, I mean, honestly, in my opinion, the biggest one, I mean, look at Russia. I mean, I don't know if you guys are up on what's going on with them. There's a huge scandal going on right now of, uh, the Russian government being in on all these positive drug tests, you know, right. um, wow, yeah. and, and, and this, 
and this big cover up. I mean, and that just goes to show that, you know, these European countries are doping, you know, yeah. I mean, not to say that there aren't Americans or Australians doping like. For sure. All sports, us um, all sports. But the big thing, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, the big thing, and this is the way it was put to me. I'll see if I can word it as good as it was to me is so like in countries like America, and I can't vouch exactly for Australia, but I would assume it's the same. So in America, we have USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. So if you test positive here in America um, from our drug testing, then you're banned. So, but in countries like long? Russia, you know, they drug test you to make sure that you're gonna. What's that? Oh, oh sorry. Well, and, and, how and, long we? How long are you banned for? Oh well, if you test positive on, uh, and and the rules are constantly changing, but if you test positive for anabolic steroids in America, your first offense is usually two years, and then your second offense is usually lifetime, and that's the same in other countries, but. Um, in Russia, when they drug test you na- domestically, they're trying to make sure that you're going to pass the drug test internationally. So they won't nec- they won't ban you in Russia for testing positive in Russia. They're just making sure that you're going to pass the test internationally. Yeah, that's um, interesting. You know, so whereas in America, you can't take drugs at all. You could, if you test positive, you're done, right? Yep. Um, but these other countries, they cycle up to competition, you know, and then they cycle off right before. So they let's just say they might have only been off drugs for a week or two you know and they so they they've been off for a couple of weeks but they still have the advantage of six months of doping oh, whereas sure. in america whereas in america i can be drug tested you know tomorrow morning you know i mean i have my my i have to put in so this is how how rigorous it is here so um i have to update three months at a time where i'm going to be every single day so they can come and drug test me anywhere so it hasn't happened on this trip but trips in the past um, I was doing an outlaw barbell camp one time uh, in New York, and uh, they they I put in my hotel or whatever, and I put in the gym, and they showed up in the morning at the hotel before I went to camp and drug tested me. Well, I mean, they'll they can they you that you have to let them know where you are, um, and if they show up, so there's been times where I forgot to update it. I'm, I was at an outlaw barbell camp, and they called me and said, "Hey, you know, this is so and so with Usada. You know, we're here to drug test you. Where are you?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm in uh, I'm in California, so I'm not going to be making it." You know. Um, and then two, uh, three of those three missed tests and you're banned. So even if you don't, they don't even catch you. If you miss your test, then you can be banned. Yeah. Um, so That's I crazy, think the, ine- I think the inequality of drug testing is, is a big one. Um, and I think the other thing, at least in America is, um, the professional sports take up a lot of our best athletes like football and baseball, um, you know, and basketball They you know, the, the kids growing up get funneled into the sports that pay money you know yeah, it's not the so, nation's not the nation's uh the nation's sport like it is in, in russia. russia or, or yeah. china or, or it doesn't take up a bigger part of the the public um the public they thought, get treated like kings over in europe yeah, oh, yeah. They do. yeah so just forgive my ignorance um quickly jared my understanding um is that there's a world anti-doping authority and i yeah. i thought that was for um for all for for all sort of sports and and I thought um, weightlifting would be under that. Oh, it is, but here's here's the difference, right? WADA, the World Anti Doping Agency. Yep. You, I don't know if they they may, but I don't think they do um, international randomized testing. Or if they do, it's very rare. They only usually test at event. So where, like I said, USADA, the U.S. Anti Doping Agency, they'll test me randomly. You know, before Worlds, I was being tested every two months or six weeks randomly. But those countries, they don't get tested randomly. WADA will only test them in, in competition. Yeah, so, uh, yeah that's that why sense. you see yeah. a lot of these guys that are 
not competing for you know two years or they miss a world effectively these guys could be cycling for 18 months yeah and then having how long it would probably take four months to get out of your system i'm not really sure but and um, then, there's, there's the, drugs the that'll pass out of your system in a matter of a week right so you, you can be cycling for for like bill said 18 months and then they're out for a week just before the the world anti-doping comes along and then you're sweet to, to jump in for world champs for example is that, is that what oh, you're saying oh, Oh, pretty much. Well, well, here's here's an example for you. Okay, so this this last year the World Championships were in were in Houston, Texas. They were it was the first time they'd been in the United States in like twenty or thirty years. Yep. Um, and so when uh, they do uh, an international competition like that, the national drug testing takes is like the long arm of WADA, right? So so USADA, the U.S. Anti Doping Agency, acted as the as WADA for the World Championships. And so uh, the American drug testing had came, had come up with like a new test that would test back a couple days further back than any other drug test before. And that uh, knowledge didn't get out. So at the world championships, there was a record amount of people who tested positive than it, than in world championships prior. And the super heavyweight, um, the Russian who broke all the, the world records, if you remember that, yeah, Lachev or whatever his name is, Lachev. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Alexei Lachev. Lachev, yep, Lachev. He tested positive for something that gets out of your system with like overnight. So he had <laughs> taken something the night before that would normally be out of his system that day, that morning, right? Smooth. But be- <laughs> but because but because they had had a new um, test that went back even further, they got him on it. So they he got caught on something that he took. I mean, within 24 hours of the competition that they caught him for, right? That's so, so I dumb. mean, isn't it right? Right. Uh, so I mean, and, what was uh, it? Uh, I can't. I to be honest with you, I can't remember. It was like some. This Just might sound wrong. Things. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it was some type of. I don't even want to say it because I'm not exactly sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, don't but, speculate yet. But here's something funny too, man. So in my weight class, five out of the top nine people tested positive and they didn't even test all nine people yeah so <laughs> so so pretty much every per, like you know what i mean that's just yeah, crazy every, every, right? everybody's on it it's funny how um i looked on i was searching through um just facebook or instagram i think it was facebook uh a couple of days ago and hook rip had made um had put up the lot lobchev's um 264 clean and jerk or whatever it was the new world record and um they were promoting it through hook rip uh maybe it was all things gym it was one of the two mm. Which is fine, but what the point that I'm trying to make here is there's not a whole, a whole bunch of stigma attached to getting popped as a drug cheap because a lot of these guys will come back in a few years and be a respected member of the weightlifting community, um, win medals in certain events. Is that a fair statement, Jared? Do you think? Oh yeah, that totally. But here's the thing, man. All of them are not all. That's that's not fair to say. But such a large majority of of weightlifters in Asia and in Europe. Are, are doing drug testing or, or I'm sorry, are doping that it's kind of like, oh man, that poor bastard, he got caught. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're all doing it and they don't look down on it. That's right. You know, they're just like, man, sorry, too bad he got caught. It's, and that's just how it goes. You know I mean? To them, that's just part of it. You it's know? like the Lance, the Lance Armstrong mindset kind of thing all the way they're through all Europe it. and Europe and Asia. It almost becomes who can cheat the best then though, really. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying the training they're doing isn't isn't enough or more than enough because they're still training a ton. But whoever's on the best 
drug or anabolic agent is probably going to come up top if they're all doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, like they're training just as hard as anybody. Of course, and, yeah. And, and in, a, in a way, they might be training harder because with drugs, they're you know, anabolic, a, anabolic agents, mm. all they really do is they allow you to recover faster. That's what it. That's truly what it does. It doesn't directly increase muscle. It doesn't no. directly increase strength. It directly increases the the duration of or decreases the duration of time it takes to uh, recovery recover your muscles. Yep. So they can train harder. They can train longer, um, in a sense, because they can because of the drugs. You know. So I mean, they're training just as hard, but you're right. I mean, it's not a it's not a level fair across field. the board. Exactly. I, I can um, I can, judging by the conversation, I can I kind of can gather y- your thoughts before I even ask the question. But how does that make you feel as someone who's dedicated their life to weightlifting, who's really naturally talented, and who is at the top of the of the heap uh, nationwide? When you get to the international level, you're not quite at the top of the heap. How does that like? Does that really frustrate the shit out of you, or what? You know, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I, you know, I, not a kid, but, you know, when I started competing internationally, I knew that the, these, it it was unfair. And my thing was, if I could be the best in America, which I knew was a level playing field, then to me, you know, I would be not satisfied, you know, you're always striving to be better, but I, I would be happy and proud of myself, you know, if I knew that I was the best of the best in a level playing field, then, Hey, you know, I was the best, you know? Yeah. But, but, you know, and I honestly believe that I can medal at the world championship someday. You know, I, my best snatch is 170 in competition. And I believe, I think 176 or 177 got bronze at worlds, uh, in my weight class last year. So, I mean, I'm not really that far from not at uh, getting no, a medal. That's definitely so, a capable goal to, to have. Yeah. So even with the playing field not being level, I still believe that it's possible, you know, for, people to medal so hey you know being the best in america is something i can be proud of and and, you know hang my hat on someday if that's all that happens but i'm certainly going to be striving for more you know even though i know that there is inequality yeah absolutely hey jared uh we're gonna change it up or not change up we're just gonna change the mood we're gonna throw to a segment called uh gbs the good the bad and the science where we pretend to be pseudoscientists and talk (laughs) about some interesting topics so uh tommy's got this one Jared, are you a, uh, a science man at all? A science man? I love science. Oh, ah, good. <laughs> Beautiful. I love you even more now. <laughs> yeah. You went from a, uh, a 6 out of 10 to a 9 out of 10. Okay. So, the uh, I start off with uh, the good, something um, that's happened in the news, um, something not so good, the bad, and then uh, we throw it to, uh, like I said before, the science Okay. So... I'm going to start off. Heading for Europe or North America on your next holiday, how about adding another continent to your itinerary? Europe plus North America with a stopover in Asia for a few days at about the same price as a return to, to Europe. So they've uh, basically, that's the, um, the title of the, of the article, they've, they're, they're developing what's called a around-the-world ticket. So around-the-world tickets can be fantastic value provided you buy from the right seller and they can vary enormously in price. Uh, I'm pretty basic- sure they've had these for years, Tommy. Have they? What date is this? Uh, this article was from 1973. Are you sure they've had round-the-world tickets for ages? Cause I remember when I first travelled in 2010, <laughs> yeah. when I was 21, I uh, inquired about around-the-world tickets. What? Oh, my God. I didn't know that. <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, my God. Oh, I should have put more... <laughs> Anyway, All right, so, so 1973. Do you guys, yeah. So, would you guys be interested in buying these? 
<laughs> I didn't know that. Oh shit, Jared, have you um have you jumped on a, an around the world ticket, mate? <laughs> you know, back in 1980, and back in my day, you yeah. know, I uh, I jumped on one of those. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh man, because I'm I'm um, I'm around your age. I'm I'm just a bit younger than you. So back in uh, the the early 60s, when obviously we were uh, young gentlemen, did you? So this is uh, something that we had around. There. <laughs> Let's move on, mate. Let's oh, definitely shit. move on. <laughs> so good. All right. The uh, the bat. Now I know this isn't hasn't been around since the uh, the 40s. Um, does legal pot make roads less safe? This is uh, coming from the US because obviously uh, you are a man from the US. So I thought I'd uh, make it local into your into your backyard. At least 20 states could pass laws this year legalizing medical or recreational marijuana use. As many as 11 states will vote on marijuana on a ballot measure in this fall's election. While legalizing marijuana will almost certainly decrease the number of non-violent offenders held in custody by law enforcement, Legal Pot presents a new challenge for authorities in the form of impaired drivers under the influence of marijuana. Now, you're in Colorado, am I right, at the moment, Jared? Yeah, man. I'm in the state where you can do just about whatever you want with oh, marijuana. Raise that shit up, Jared! <laughs> 420, <laughs> please! <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually under the influence as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. That's not true. Maybe it is. I don't know. Well, I mean... <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, I'm so yeah, high right now. I can't now. remember. What, I don't even know. When did we start talking? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were talking again in the 40s. So. Medical... Oh, I might if they gave it to you for your knee. That's interesting. So, yeah, how, how is it over there? Is there uh, tons of impaired drivers made, or what, what's the go in Colorado? I mean, uh, well, so right now in the states of uh, Washington, uh, Colorado, and Washington, D.C., which is a district, not a state. Sure. Um, though it's, a, it's completely, and I think Oregon, too. I'm not exactly sure, but more and more states are legalizing it. To be honest, I mean, I think marijuana should just be like alcohol. You should be 21 years old to to possess it or 18 or whatever. I don't know. Um, and it should be like alcohol and that, you know, if you're under the influence when you're driving, then you should be arrested. If you're, if you're in the privacy of your own home, I mean, it's, it's a plant grows in the ground. It's not man-made. Why not? I don't know. I mean, that's my opinion. I don't really recreationally smoke. I don't personally enjoy it, but I mean, I think that, you know, it's not, you know, it's not smoking. Marijuana has never killed anybody. You know, alcohols kill people. Other drugs are kill people. I don't think Every that there's any, any harm in that. Yeah, you just just regulate it like alcohol and let people do what they want. My yeah, I think um, if you do regulate something like that, there's that whole um, argument about regulating drugs and all that sort of thing. But if you you know if you can look at it, maybe as it's a, uh, a less harmful one, maybe than some of the others. If you regulate it, people won't be so um, for trying to do it and do it in copious amounts because it's you know legal and that whole thing of rules are meant to be broken. I well, remember when the- I tried it once or twice and. I um I don't do it, but I just tried it, and uh, I just got super happy. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't that bad. The um the this the government can tax it too. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously you don't want all tons and tons of money going to the government, but it can that can be spent on schools and roads and infrastructure. Yeah, you know, and um I believe I'm not sure if you know anything about this, Jared, but I believe that the um aggravated assault percentages um. Um, drink driving percentages—they've all dropped, or they've all—all all the all the figures are going in the right direction. Yep. Basically, through the um, yeah, through the release of medical—not medical—um, through the release of um, the ability to smoke marijuana. So that's interesting, isn't it? That is, I you know, I, I haven't heard those statistics, but I believe it. That's interesting, you know. Mm. I mean, honestly, I think the only reason that marijuana is still illegal is because of tobacco lobbyists. You know, I mean, 
if 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 marijuana is out there for people to smoke, I think that tobacco companies would lose money. But I know I did hear something recently that um, one of the largest tobacco companies is buying up a bunch of uh, small marijuana stocks, and so basically they're gearing up for, you know, to to basically start up that in that industry when it becomes legalized. I think but it's I think only for years, time, tobacco companies. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, for it to be illegal is kind of crazy, you know. I mean, what what harm really is it? You know, I mean, you have. You have uh, Big Pharma putting out drugs like Vicodin and Oxycodone, oh, oh, Oxycontin totally that are terrible for your for your liver, your kidneys. You know what I mean? That when you could, you know, medicinal marijuana is a natural painkiller and yep. it's way better for you. So, I mean, for it to be, you know, I mean, that's the other thing too. Pharmacy companies don't want to be legal because, you know, they're going to lose money. You know, people can yeah. smoke a joint or, or, you know, or, or whatever, take a marijuana pill, you know, with, with, and, they don't have to pay for all these other crazy drugs, so so drug companies lose money. So I think yep. that it's just lob- lobbyists keeping it from being legal. Yep. Um, okay, we're going to move to uh, to science now. And um, normally I'll I'll uh, think of it. I'll find an article, Jared, and I'll um, talk about something super interesting. We're all Mac and myself and uh, Bill really into our science and uh, philosophy and, and all that sort of stuff. So we thought we'd make a segment that's um, to do with that. This is one that I've actually written up myself um, just to give some uh, facts out there. And I, I basically just want to blow the fuck out Hang of your minds. Are you a philosopher? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say I'm not 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 a philosopher. <laughs> so you're not 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 a philosopher. So you're not a philosopher. So I'm not a philosopher. No. Triple negative is the, yeah, yeah, triple negative. And so you've written this I've and written then this. you just said 100% fact. So this is 100%. Well, I researched it um, <laughs> and I, uh, I wrote it up. <laughs> yeah, You copied and pasted it. I copied and pasted it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, whatever you, got, you go, mate? don't look up Wikipedia because that's all. <laughs> that's all this. Now I, I did read. This is stuff that I already know because I'm obviously um, quite smart and um, <laughs> super uh, super sexy as well. <laughs> For all uh, the guys out there, Tommy's number is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, bars get the guys. <laughs> okay, have a listen to this. Okay, so let's break it down. And have a good old chat about the size of the universe. This is mind-boggling stuff here, lads. Our brains struggle to comprehend how big the universe is because. Everything here on Earth, and even the Earth itself, is very small when compared to the immense scale of the universe. In the time it took you, or the time it took me, um, excuse me, to read this far, that's definitely not copy and pasted. (laughs) 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 Shit. Oh, damn it. In the time it took... You can read more about this at (laughs) wikipedia.com. In the time it took me to read this far, a photon of light leaving the sun has travelled about 10 million kilometres equivalent to traveling around the Earth 250 times. Light, obviously what we use to measure universe, universal distances is our fastest known mover, essentially. Now, I want to give you guys some perspective here. Because light takes time to travel, when we look up in the night sky, we only see things how they were or how, how they were as long as the light from them took to come to us. So if we look uh, up at the moon, and let's say it takes light about six minutes to travel from the moon to Earth, we're seeing the moon as it was six minutes ago. Everybody with me so far? Everybody learned that in uh, grade three science. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Very good. Continue. (laughs) So let's put this on a bigger scale. It it takes light 2.5 million years to travel from the Andromeda galaxy, which is our closest galaxy, our next door neighbor, if you will, to reach Earth. So whatever happened 2.5 million years ago in that galaxy is what we're seeing now. The whole universe is littered with galaxies, just like the Milky Way and Andromeda, and using our most powerful telescopes, we can see light from galaxies that have taken more than 13 billion years to reach us. That's our rough estimate of the age of the known universe, as we haven't seen beyond that. We are fairly certain that there, uh, there is universe beyond what we know, but uh, light hasn't actually 
traveled that long that we actually know it's there or not, okay? So imagine that a photon of light is emitted from a point on the edge of our observable universe. While that photon has been traveling through space, the universe has expanded. We have moved away from the point where the light was emitted and it has moved away from us. Though the light might have only traveled for 13.8 billion years, the distance from us to the point it came from at present is 46 billion light years away. Jesus Christ. Now, bring yourself back down here in the room. And I want to ask you guys this. Over that time, how many intelligent civilizations do you think have lived and become extinct and, uh, and will again? After all of that time. It's a good question. Yeah. I'll start. Please. I think that there has been 50 trillion civilized civilizations in the universe in that time. I think that um, they can work out with um, statistical kind of analysis as far as we know um, how many how many galaxies are able to harbor life, how many planets are in those galaxies, so on and so forth. And it's so minuscule, but the universe is so big that you'd have to be really silly, in my opinion, yep. to believe that there hasn't been tons and tons of life and some of which would have evolved to the level that we're at. Um, I don't know. And beyond, surely and beyond. What I mean, you- there are trillions of um, trillions of planets that have the possibility to harbor life within galaxies, and there are trillions of galaxies. Jared, do you have a, a thought on this? Yeah, man. Um, so let me let me break into my scientific brain here. Yep. Um, you know, I, I mean, to be honest with you, so so something interesting that my dad used to tell me when we would talk, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in science and philosophy and the purpose of life and all kinds of stuff. You know, mm. it's really up my alley. And I spend a lot of my spare time kind of question, you know, asking myself these kinds of, you know, existential questions, you know. Definitely. And uh, one of the things that my dad told me when I was younger, you know, I, I asked him how big the universe was and he said it's infinite. And I'm like, how can something never have an end, right? You know, how can it not have a beginning and an end? Mm. And what he said to me is he said, imagine the, the universe, right? Like, Say you come to like a wall, that's the end of the universe. And then he said, what's beyond that wall? There's got to be something beyond that, right? There's there's sure. no wall that's just containing the universe because there would have to be something beyond it. Mm. So the universe is infinite, right? Which I feel like our human brains at the level of consciousness that we're at can't even comprehend what infinite means. So yeah. as that's- far as, you know, you talk about 46 billion years or whatever um, of time, but if the universe is infinite and has no end, then wouldn't that mean that there's been an infinite number of, of, you know, life forms. Uh, yeah. Life forms and whatever, because if there's Definitely. an infinite number of planets and galaxies and universe, you know, in the universe that we can't even begin to imagine, I mean, then I would imagine there's probably an infinite number of an, in, in, an inconceivable amount of life in the universe. I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't think that you can even, put a number on it i think it's infinite it doesn't end there's no beginning end i think it's just infinite with with that that analogy that you just used um jared is the exact analogy that i use uh when talking about the same thing i've been trying to um have this discussion about uh the the ghosts versus aliens discussion Uh, with my girlfriend she believes in ghosts and i believe in aliens and she thought i was silly for that and i've been trying to Does it have to be one or the other well that's right but (laughs) what i um the 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 example that you use in the analogy of the wall of the universe, like when did the universe, where does the universe end, obviously? Have you ever, I'll ask you, Jared, have you ever used that same exact analogy 
when thinking about life and how life started. Because this, when you said how there's there's a a level of consciousness or a level of understanding that we don't have and I don't think we'll ever have because if you use that same rule and apply that to life, obviously the universe was created but who put that there? And then uh-huh. whoever put that there, the Big the big Bang, who put that there? And it, and it, chicken it, or the egg? Chicken or the egg and it's it's an unanswerable it is. question. So totally. this is why it's so, so interesting because we know for a fact that we don't know what's got. We, we can't know. I don't think we can ever know it's such a... We, we, we don't even know if we exist or not. I'm going to put that out there for all the listeners. <laughs> you, you, know, I, I, you know, so what's interesting is uh, I just started reading a book called The Hidden Meanings of the Universe. Okay. Um, right. and, it's, and I just started reading it a few days ago. Who's that you by, know, sorry? Again, what's that? Who's that by? Uh, to be honest with you, I can't, or... can't remember. Okay. I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up. I'll, I'll find I, the book's in the other room. I'll grab it before we're done. But, uh, sure. Yeah, hidden meanings of the universe or hidden meanings of the world or something like that. And what it poses a question of is, you know, it says, do we really exist, this and that. But what it said that that was interesting to me was, so science cannot, un, like, so, like the brain, right? We, we know that, you know, certain lobes or hemispheres of the brain are responsible for sight or responsible for, you know, feeling or whatever, right? Mm. But they have no, nothing that can explain or describe consciousness, mm. right? Like what why are we conscious? Why are we able to react with our environment? There's nothing that we can prove scientifically that understands why we're conscious beings, right? You know, Absolutely. that we can recognize ourselves as living. Um, so the question he poses is what, you know, did, did consciousness create matter, right? Did, did, did consciousness create everything that we know as planets in the universe or did matter create consciousness? And that's what is like the real question is, so, you know, we talk about the Big Bang being a collision of a bunch of atoms or elements, you know, and create all of this. So was it random events of matter that created consciousness or was there a consciousness that created matter that then turned everything into what that it is, is now? A that's a fantastic question. Housed, housed the consciousness. That's why there's a lot of um, really... That's a great question, isn't it? A lot of, a lot of philosophers and... Uh, and people that are looking into the future of AI, artificial intelligence. And um, I know for a fact that a lot of them believe that there's no reason why computers can't harbor consciousness yep. in the future because we don't know that our bones and our uh, our systems that we have, and our, like the, the atoms that put us together, they're the same atoms that put robotics Stars together. And... Oh, so right. why couldn't consciousness be housed in a robot? Mac, you, you have thoughts... I know that are pretty deep on this topic as in you believe consciousness is transportable kind of where does the the pod that it sits in or oh, for starters Jared wow <laughs> you have rocked my socks off do you want to join yeah. our science team we're looking for a yeah, <laughs> we need a, we need a, a fourth member <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to start a science, uh, science podcast uh, a, a, a philosophy slash science slash Wait, yeah. uh, you know, I, I like that. Maybe that's our whole new podcast. Hey, uh, I think you asked a fantastic question. What is the answer to that? your question? Or are you still discovering that in your book regarding did matter create consciousness or did consciousness create matter? Because that will dictate my answer, I suppose. Fantastic well, here, I mean, the thing is, there's, there's, we don't know. You know what I mean? That's just a question. I mean, to be honest, here's an example that he posed. And I haven't finished the book yet. I'm only like a quarter of the way. This book, I'm on page 60. It's a six. I'm 10% of the way through the book, 
and he's already completely like starting to reshape the way I think about hmm. things. Right. Well, um, it's just sick. incredible. And like I said, before we get off, I'll, I'll find the, the exact name of the book and the author. Yeah. We'll put but it anyways, in the show notes for the listeners. I've already, uh, looked it up. It's, uh, it wasn't our it mate, Beth Graham. Revis? Huh? No, it's not Graham Hancock. No, no, nah, Beth Revis. Beth Revis. Uh, here, I'll find it right now. Cool. Um, <laughs> But but the what I'll what I'll say while I'm while I'm grabbing that book is he gives an example for us um, and what he says is think of any action that we do right if you reach out to touch somebody or you or anything like that right your consciousness that we can't explain right your thoughts your the consciousness of you had an idea that I wanted to touch something so that consciousness created. Of something physical, something tangible, right? So mm-hmm. the consciousness of your mind gave you an impulse to do something. So in that sense, consciousness is creating a physical thing, right? I, I see where so, you're this. I, I think so I with, think I do so, as well. So with that same concept of of your own consciousness creating something, then the universe would be like the same thing, right? The consciousness 100%. of the universe, what whatever that is, it's beyond our comprehension, right? created the world and everything as we know. But anyways, I got the book right here. Um, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's called The Secret History of the World, and it's by Mark Booth. Mark Booth. Nice. Um, I've, heard his name. I've heard that name before, yeah. Came hey, out in um, two, 2008. That, um, what you just said before, I just want to really simplify that for everyone that's not uh, as uh, sciencey <laughs> as we all are. I just, I just had a thought then. Um, you said how... Um, our consciousness created, let's just say I'm looking at a guitar right now. Let's just say the consciousness of me created a thought that I wanted to touch that guitar, except the beautiful paradox is that if the guitar wasn't there, so if that matter wasn't there in the first place, that wouldn't have created my consciousness to want to touch it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. that's true. But And you take a step back to the consciousness of the person who built that guitar for you to then have the you know, it's it goes back and forth. It's impossible to even know. You know, it's a beautiful paradox, isn't it? It is. It's it's the chicken or the egg. You don't know. Mm. We'll never know. It's just posing a question that no one no one thinks of. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just. I think it's. I think the beauty of of all this is opening your mind beyond what we. You know, it's kind of like meditation, right? The goal is to open your mind beyond the confines that we're that we have, right? And broadening your consciousness. I think that's what these questions more or less do because we'll never you know we'll never really know the answer no. but i think the beauty of of all of it is opening your mind to the possibility of these things and sure. learning to think beyond hey, the confines Jared. of what we know yeah have you had dmt <laughs> no okay <laughs> <laughs> he's like fuck no <laughs> D- dmt is that a drug or something it's uh it's a mind opening experience oh i've it's never a releaser Hmm. Interesting. I no. I, I think I've heard of it, but I've never never taken anything like it's that. It's the before. drug that's. Uh, it's the drug that's. Uh, it accesses your subconscious. Is it kind of like? Is it like mushrooms or something like that? Yeah, it's a. It's a psychedelic, I suppose. Hmm. It's the it's the psychedelic um, element that's in ayahuasca. You know the the drink that people go into the Amazon to drink. You can actually synthesize it and um, have a. You can buy it in a DMT in the in the pure form, and it gives you really wild visions. I haven't experienced it uh max max um played around that had some really crazy experiences um it's a drug that's released when you're born and when you die so it's released in the human body and they say that when you Uh. when you when you dream really really deep dreams and you get immersed in that 
crazy lifelike dream and um, that can be a small release of, uh, of DMT in your, in your body. Should we okay. should we get back on track? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're Alrighty. little little off track here, but it's all interesting uh, philosophy and, and and questions of the universe is so interesting. It's interesting right, how uh, his, welcome, history welcome and team, uh, life are <laughs> they're the best, aren't they? And they're so Good. important. All right, part one done. Lot to take home from Jared's first episode. Stay tuned for his second episode to come. If you liked this episode, and even if you didn't, subscribe to iTunes. Uh, You can find our show notes on adventurefittravel.com forward slash podcast, where you can also join our mailing list where you uh, won't miss out on any updates for the episodes, blogs and promotions, and everything to do with AdventureFit and AdventureFit Travel. Until next time, bye.